we are beginning the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. And I want to make a couple of different points about it, uh, starting and actually, in some ways, only elaborating on the very first sentence. Really, to some extent, I'm going to stick with the first word, but the first word is very rich. And so I hope that you will uh, follow along, if you wish, either by looking at the text, again, the beginning of Leviticus, or just by listening since we're restricting ourselves mostly to the first word, it won't be that difficult to figure out what it is that we are talking about. Um, in ancient times, and in fact, in medieval times, the uh, first book of the Bible, the, the, the third book of the Bible, rather, by Yikra, was in fact the book that uh, students were started with when they began their studies as children, because according to the rabbis, the sacrifices were pure. Don't forget the sacrifices were intended in part to purify and children are pure and therefore they matched up children and sacrifices, which tells you already, if you didn't know, that the book of Ayikra, the book of Leviticus is largely about sacrifices, a theme to which we will return in just a moment. But I want to begin with the first word, Vayikra, which means, and he, that is God, and God called. There is, both in the Torah and also probably in your printed text, if it is uh, a decent um, rendition of the Hebrew text, there is a small aleph at the end of that word, Vayikra. And I want to begin by telling you a little bit about the small Aleph. Now, the Aleph, as many of you know, or all of you know, is a silent letter. It has no sound. In fact, there was one mystic uh, Hasidic rabbi who said that actually when uh, God revealed God's self at Sinai, the only thing that was revealed was the Aleph, which is the first letter of the first word of the Ten Commandments. Anochi, the first uh, I am, the first letter of Anochi is Aleph, but also carries the sort of mystical in, um, implication that revelation was contained in silence. And so God's self-revelation was that of a silent God, but in that silence was contained all meaning and everything. It's a beautiful and a deep uh, mystical idea that we need not go into too much here, except to remember that the Aleph is silent, which reminds us that the addition, the little Aleph at the end of Ayikra, it's like silence is tacked on to the end of that word. If you take the Aleph out and you just have the letters Vav Yud Kuf Resh, Vayikar, it means it happened, happenstance. It comes from the like the word mikra in Hebrew. The mikra just accidentally so-and-so-and-so happened, or I guess such-and-such happened. Um, in any event, what this means is that the addition of the Aleph makes the meaning of the word go from accident to on purpose, from something that just happened to happen to God's call to Moses. And there is contained in that 
very tiny edition of the Aleph, therefore a huge idea, which is the things in the world can be changed from random to purposeful. I think at the moment, that's an extraordinarily rich idea because I know, and here we'll just do a little bit of theology, at least as I see it, um, when something like a pandemic breaks out, a lot of people suffer from a case of bad theology. By that, I mean, they wonder, why did God do this to us? And they try to look for a reason in our behavior or more often in our misbehavior about why it is that God decided all of a sudden, you know what? New York and L.A. and Wuhan, those are the places, maybe Italy and Spain, these places really need uh, some rebuking. And so I'm going to hit them hard with a plague. I think, though, that the rabbis in their best moments knew better than that. As you know, um, if you were watching the class the other day, I quoted the rabbinic statement that when the Malach HaMavet, the angel of death, is loosed on the world, it makes no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. In other words, when there is some kind of terrible plague or war, uh, it's clear that war and plague do not actually only kill bad people. Um, it's indiscriminate what happens. It's, in some sense, random. If you uh, watch war movies or read great war novels, um, you will discover that in the battle scenes, you have the same sense of fear and am I going to die? And at what moment is this going to happen to me? And uncertainty that you have around a pandemic. And if the scenes are at all truthful, then heroes will die as well as villains. The Aleph, though, suggests an element of purposefulness. It turns Vayikar into Vayikra. And the change is that God calls out. So I'd like to think that this is teaching us not that you can change the pandemic itself necessarily, not on its own. Obviously, there are all sorts of efforts to do that, but that your response to it, whether you heed the call, whether you call out yourself, whether you pay attention to what's going on, that that actually does make a difference. And if that's true, that we can learn from Vayikra to call out to one another and to God, then the very first word of the book carries a deep message about what's going on in our world at our time. I want to bring two other lessons from this word, from Vayikra, uh, to this morning's Torah class. And once again, I want to remind you that you are welcome to make comments, um, and I will see them on the board if you comment about uh, the class or make a question or offer a question about the class. I'll see them on the screen and respond as best I can. Um, the second point I want to make is that the Aleph is often taken, the small Aleph at the end of the word Vayikra is often taken as a sign of humility. Um, it's almost as though God was tentatively talking to Moses, doesn't want to overwhelm him. Remember when God first comes to Moshe at the burning bush, he says, he 
he says, this is the God of your fathers, um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Midrash, the rabbis say that the reason that's there is that God came to Moses in the voice of his father because he didn't want to terrify him. And so he came to him in a voice that was comforting and close. Um, so the next uh, elaboration of this is the Vayikra voice, which is a small voice because humility, which is not so much a value in the um, modern world, humility is a very powerful value in the Torah. You know that Moses said that he was the most humble man who ever lived. Um, and so the idea that the Vayikra is teaching humility, not only from Moses, but even from God, that God, not to say that God is humble is to attribute a human characteristic to God, but that God is modeling humility so that people will learn it, is not necessarily attributing a characteristic to God other than God is a pedagogue, God is an educator which uh, our tradition certainly believes. In any case, the idea that what God wants to model to Moses is humility is, I think, also a really important idea. Uh, we live in a world in which self-assertion and self-confidence and self-esteem and even arrogance are in some ways prized and praised. Um, everybody is supposed to spike the football when they get a touchdown. But here you have Moses, the most accomplished human being who ever lived. And what it says about him is that he was the most humble man who ever lived. So in that sense, I think it is clear that uh, that the Vayikra is trying to teach us something very powerful and very important about our own personal disposition. In the comments, Michael is asking whether this is a divine chast chastisement, the plague that is being uh, loosed upon the world, the pandemic. And if not, then how do I explain the plague in Egypt? Uh, I think that it is quite clear that a lot of things that are attributed to divine will in the Bible are not intended to be attributed to divine will in the modern age. Um, if that were true, first of all, if the origin of the plague, whether you believe the origin of the plague is some secret plot or that someone bit a bat, neither of those seem to me to be from the hand of God. Right. Human beings created this plague and human beings are trying to solve it. Um, but also to to say that God would loose a plague on the world to kill innocent as well as guilty people, um, which is what diseases inevitably do, uh, makes God into a fairly random tyrant. And that certainly is not the God that I believe in. Uh, I think we can learn things from the terrible things that happen. But do I believe that God has deliberately loosed this on the world in order to chastise us? No. And is there any evidence that in fact, after the plague, all of a sudden people will return to tradition? No. In fact, things like plagues tend to weaken tradition in some ways, I hope not in others, but to make it more difficult to observe the Passover, is that going to bring people back to Judaism? I'm not sure that it will, although, I certainly hope that we can find ways of celebrating powerfully. So, no, I don't believe for a moment that uh, a virus is God's way of chastising human beings, although I know that there are other rabbis who will tell you differently. Um, all I can say is I think they're deeply and in some cases even tragically 
wrong to uh, to make such an argument. Um, anyway, so uh, and and by the the other thing that I should say about this is that um, is that when viruses and things like this happen, they tend to be hardest on the poor, the oppressed, the hungry, the homeless. Seems to me that if God were going to chastise us, God would somehow find a way to chastise those who are cruel, who uh, use their wealth badly, as opposed to those who use their wealth well, those rulers who are bad, as opposed to those rulers who are good. But no, I don't see any discrimination in that sense or on that point. Um, and that's why I really do believe that those statements in rabbinic literature, and this is important, that, that emphasize this, um, like there is no reward for the mitzvot in this world, which it says in the Talmud, um, those statements are really important to take to heart. Now, I know that there are other parts of the Jewish tradition that contradict that, um, but I think that the evidence is pretty powerful uh, on the side of those who say that in fact, randomness happens. I will just one last comment on this. Um, I think Jews ought never to forget that those who died in the Shoah, in the Holocaust, were vastly disproportionately the most traditional and observant members of our people. And therefore, anybody who says that God does things like that to punish people, I think is, is sort of blaspheming. Um, because if that were true, I don't think that the most traditional among our people, the most observant, uh, would be the ones who would suffer. To move on for Vayikra, um, actually, in some sense, not to move on, because, uh, because we're coming now to a, a topic that um, really does touch on these very deep and difficult issues. And that is what the entire book of Vayikra is about. I said that we would return to it, and now we are returning to it. Um, and that is sacrifice. The sacrifice which happened in the temple and then stopped when the temple was destroyed um, in uh, 70 CE. So we have not really sacrificed uh, um, since 70 CE for a couple thousand years. But sacrifice is the main theme of Leviticus. And here, first, I want to introduce two theories about sacrifice and then talk a little bit more about it. Why does God want the Jews to sacrifice animals? So the traditional, uh, the pagan explanation for why sacrifice is given, you know, you find this in Greek myth and Roman myth and Homer and so on, is that the gods somehow eat the sacrifice and they have these huge feasts. Um, obviously, that can't be the motivation for Jewish sacrifice because God doesn't eat uh, the way human beings do. And therefore, sacrifice has to have some kind of other rationale. It can't be that God, quote unquote, needs it. Um, so why does God command it? The uh, great medieval rationalist um, Maimonides said that the reason that God commands sacrifice is twofold, basically. One is to diminish the divinity of animals in other cultures. Like 
You worship a cow, we sacrifice a cow to our God. So you should know, pagan who worships a cow, that as far as we're concerned, a cow is a created creature that can be sacrificed and eaten. Um, the second reason, says Maimonides, is that Jews, having grown up in pagan cultures, because, of course, every Jew grew up in a pagan culture in the ancient world, because there were only pagan cultures and Jews. Um, Jews, having grown up in a pagan culture, have grown up in a world in which there is all this sacrifice. And sacrifice is the way that, that people worshipped God, and they have to be weaned off of it. So taking Isaac up to the mountain, for example, when Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain, in this in this way of thinking is God saying, you know, this human sacrifice thing that all these other nations do, you may not do this. I want you to know you can get right to the point where you're about to do it. And I tell you, no, that's not the kind of God I am, Abraham, to whom I am still introducing myself. Right. Which is what God is doing in essence. Um, so there the idea for Maimonides is that you command sacrifice in order eventually to get rid of sacrifice. OK, um, pagans around Jews need to learn no more sacrifice. This is a very rationalistic view. And a lot of people were very upset with Maimonides for rationalistic views. Um, as you may or may not know, sometimes when people apply questions of reason or logic to Torah texts, people get upset with them. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just saying sometimes that happens. Uh, so Nachmanides, Ramban, who lived uh, a little bit after Maimonides um, and also was a great uh, Torah commentator and uh, a Kabbalist as well as a uh, as a commentator and philosopher, Nachmanides says, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're completely wrong, uh, Maimonides, with all due respect. Uh, because first of all, God would not command this in order to wean us off of it because there is no indication in the Torah itself that these are temporary measures, right? The only reason they stopped is because the temple is destroyed. They didn't stop because God said, okay, you don't need it anymore. And second, even before there was a Jewish tradition, says Nachmanides, people sacrifice. I mean, Noah sacrifices. Noah is not a Jew and there is not a Jewish tradition. Why would God want sacrifices from Noah? In fact, there is something about the act of sacrifice that pleases God. Now, I think that we can in some way combine these two ideas for something very powerful, again, that has to do with where we are and what we're doing in our own lives right now. Um, sacrifice can be a very, uh, a, a very uh, effective way of binding you to someone else. Sometimes we are indebted to people for what they have done to us, but very often we are connected to people because of what we have done for them. Right. I've heard this said often about parents. Why are parents so deeply connected to their children? Because they have sacrificed so much for them. And when you sacrifice for someone, you feel connected to them. And it's very hard to feel distance from somebody that you have helped very much. 
to take an example, um, as many of you know, uh, like other clergy, rabbis have what are called discretionary funds. And I know that people in my congregation who have given money in order to help other people take a great interest in the future progress of those people whom they have helped because they feel tied to them by virtue of the fact that they have given to them, which is a beautiful human characteristic. And so you can think of a sacrifice as a way of tying human beings to God, because having given up something for God, then you feel as though you're connected in the same way that the parent feels connected to the child for whom he or she has sacrificed, even though obviously parent-child, uh, the relationship is being reversed here between the sacrificer and the recipient of the sacrifice with God and human beings, right? God is the parent, we are the children. Um, but also, I want to say that the sacrifice instantiates something else that is important, uh, at least to me, I hope will be to you, which is people often say, isn't sacrifice barbaric? I mean, you kill these animals and, you know, think that there's some worshipful aspect to it. But I actually believe that it is less barbaric than what we do today. Most of the sacrifices, not all, but the vast majority of them were eaten. They were basically food for the priests. And when you killed an animal, you did it ritually with blessings and a sense of the sanctity of what was happening. When most of us eat meat, those of you who do eat meat, although I will take this opportunity for a vegetarian commercial, it's good not to, but those of you who do eat meat, you do it generally without any sense of the sanctity of what you're eating. It, you don't know that it's been killed ritually or with any awareness of taking a life or spilling the blood on the ground because blood represents life and all of that. That was, in fact, a part of the ancient sacrifice. So in that sense, too, sacrifice in the Bible is something worthwhile. The aspect of it that actually speaks to our situation today is the reality of our necessity of sacrificing for the common good. Um, yeah, it's hard to stay home for many, many people. Uh, and there are all sorts of things that all of us have to and will have to sacrifice in order to make it through this time. Um, and those realities are realities that actually have always been true in human history. Um, human beings sacrificed from the beginning of time, not necessarily sacrifices of animals on an altar, though they did that too, but think of the sacrifices that our ancestors made in all sorts of ways so that we could live a life of relative ease and calm compared to the kinds of life that, lives that they lived. And the sacrifices that we're asking for now are fairly small by comparison for most of us, not for all of us, but for most of us, to stay home for a while, not to go out to parties, not to have gatherings, not to invite people into your home, just to stay separate for a while. It's a sacrifice. The flip side of this, of course, is to go back to the very beginning of the class, which was about Vayikra, and he called, the people who are making the greatest sacrifice in some sense are the people who are alone, the people who don't have a social connection around them or who don't live with family. And 
it's our job to call them, to reach out to them, to make sure that they are a little bit less alone. And even though we don't normally think of it this way, um, God's relationship with Moshe was the relationship of two beings, if God is called a being, who were alone in the world. I mean, Moshe, it's true, he was married, he had children, but almost all the time we see him at most with his brother Aaron, but mostly alone because his position of leadership was very isolating. I mean, he was Moses, right? He didn't have, it's not like Moses had, you know, a card game every Thursday night. Moses was a fairly isolated figure. Moses is somebody who is betrayed by everyone around him. Aaron builds the golden calf and Miriam gossips about him. And Moses feels relatively alone and isolated. And of course, God is Yahid. God is God too is alone. And so God's calling out to Moses also can be seen as a sort of a beautiful connection between two who are isolated in the world um, in their way, keeping in touch. And as you may know, it is God who buries Moses at the end of the Torah, as though that connection is so powerful that uh, even in Moses's final moments, it is God who gathers him in. At a time when there is a lot of social isolation, it's good to remember Vayikra, to call other people, to reach out to them, to be close to them, and uh, not to forget them. Um, for those of you who are watching, I want to remind you that uh, at 3.30 today, I will be teaching 3.30 Pacific time, that is California time, 6.30 Eastern time. I'll be teaching a class about resilience, models of resilience in the Torah. Um, at the Stryker Center in New York, which basically means in this same seat, but streamed through the Stryker Center in New York. And if you look on my Facebook page or on Twitter, uh, you can find the link to join that or just look to Temple Emanuel or the Stryker Center in New York, and you can find the link there. I want to thank you all for joining me this morning for the Torah class, and uh, I hope you stay safe and stay well.